I'm Marion Ellis, and this is the Surveyor Hub podcast, the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. In the Surveyor Hub podcast, you'll hear from surveyors of all flavours, businesses of all sizes, and also conversations with people working in the business of surveying, supporting the work we do. We'll be chatting about what matters in our work, our career journeys, and learning how surveyors make a social and physical impact every day through their work. Don't forget, you can rate, review, and follow the podcast on whichever platform you listen to this on. And you can also show your support at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the Surveyor Hub. In today's podcast, I'm chatting to Tina Palais. Tina boasts over 25 years of experience, including 12 years developing and managing one of the world's largest real estate asset managers. She's the co-founder and CEO of CircoTrade, an innovative startup creating value from secondhand building materials and their embodied carbon. And Tina is also Senior Vice President of the RICS. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about that too. Welcome to the podcast, Tina. Fabulous to have you on. Are you doing well? I'm doing well, and it's fabulous to be here, Marian. So glad to have chat with you and, uh, and see see what we can get up, come up with. Yeah, see what I can prize out of you. <laughs> Not that I'm any kind of interrogator. <laughs> it's very much a chat. And I was really keen to have you um, on the podcast, uh, Tina. One, because I find you quite easy to talk to, and it's quite, I always like to uh, chat to people that um that I like if you put it that way you know I'm mindful nice that a lot, a, lot, a lot of people in the UK may not know who you are you know your, your your background and you know from an RICS point of view and also um and also your work and also you know just that I, I quite admire actually what I know of you your career where you how you got to where you are so I learn as I as I do these podcasts as well as so I'm sure people <laughs> uh, no. So as a start, just uh, just introduce who is Tina? Right. OK, well, th- thanks, Marian, and uh, for this opportunity. So um, I guess I would say that I am an international real estate exec, been working in the real estate field for over 25 years. Um, and I've had a variety of positions. And today, Uh, After having worked for a very long period in corporate real estate, corporate world, I've decided to set up my own company, which is called CircoTrade. And I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about that. And I've also um, taken up the position of senior vice president at RICS globally, which is another um, big uh, commitment, I would say, of my professional life. So international real estate sounds miles away from the kind of work that I ever did when I was on the tools as a, as a surveyor. Uh, whereabouts do you live? What part of the world? Yeah, so I'm based in Paris area in France. Um, and I guess one of the reasons why international was always really important for me is, is my background. Um, I'm Canadian by birth. Uh, my mother is Iranian. My father's Dutch. I grew up mainly in the U.S. I married a Frenchman. So it seemed to me like this multicultural piece was really important for me um, to, to actually leverage on. 
and I've been working um, in France since, uh, well, whew, I hate to admit how long, but I, let's say I've been living in France since 1985. And, um, and I've also, um, within part of my career, spent about five years working in the UK. Like, yeah, I'm going to sound like I'm a... So that's the international <laughs> side. <laughs> sound like I'm, I'm in awe, but I always find it really interesting when people work in this way. My background when I grew up, I grew up in um, in North Wales and until I, I was a mature student and until I got a graduate job um, with a, a construction firm, I hadn't really left Wales, you know, and you know, I feel quite, <laughs> it seems like alien now, this was, you know, 25, nearly 30 years ago, but it just never, ever occurred to me the possibility of being able to work internationally, work in different countries, um, I used to speak two languages. I, I'm quite very rusty on the uh, on the Welsh, uh, and and this is one of the things I always find interesting about being a surveyor is that the work that we do and the that we're interested in the whole built environment, but that gap between you know little old me who who used to work in you know um, some little village somewhere, you know, to somebody who works internationally, and it feels so so big a gap sometimes, and I think that's where we as surveyors and on this podcast in our ICS need to work to bridge that gap because the more I learn about it you know the more it seems we're not that that far apart when it comes to our beliefs what's important to us and people on the podcast will have heard me talk about you know a surveyor on a wet Tuesday in Margate you know and how is our ICS how is you know surveying and the global position relevant to that surveyor soaking wet trying to do his survey for a home buyer and I, I think we need to be really curious uh, about that gap don't we yeah yeah and I guess I mean yeah. I'd react to that is you know what real estate is a very very local and specific uh, field and for a very long time it would have been practically impossible to work internationally. And, and I think actually international is probably the probably an improper word when I'm thinking about it, because it's more about working across several zones, but always working with local teams. So in all of my sort of quote unquote international rules, I've had very, very big, present, well knowledgeable local teams that I've been working with. And it's impossible to do real estate without that local knowledge. So I would say that, you know, um, it's, it, it's, not, it's not that different. It's more about having the reflexes and understanding the methodologies and the governance um, and, and really looking at it more from that, that level, but also learning about all of these, I would say almost cross-cultural issues that can come up and understanding how to deal with them. You know, it's not always, well, this is how I do it where I come from. You know, I definitely don't approach things like that. I'm very much someone who listens and tries to understand. I love learning about local custom, local ways of working. You know, I mean, I did a lot of work in South America at one point, and, and I realized that, you know, they don't value in the same way. And if I needed for the international group I was working for to get a Red Book valuation, I couldn't get it locally because they only valued in, let's say, Colombia, Argentina, you know, uh, Venezuela, the valuations were based on replacement cost. Um, so the whole idea of doing a, 
that discounted cash flow was just very foreign to them. And, and I think this is where I also realized the value of RICS because it's at that point that I started reaching out to various, you know, to RICS surveyors and RICS, um, you know, companies that were certified RICS and asking them if they could help out. Uh, so this is really, you know, that's how it, it, I think RICS bridges a huge gap in bringing in place these international standards and international methodology to what is a very local practice and needs to remain local. So that's sort of how I think uh, that that gap is, is bridged. And one of the things I've learned uh, being on governing council and you know, not having worked in an um, international arena, if you like, is just how difficult it is to apply rules and standards to all of these different countries and the way that people work, but also importantly, how much we can learn by what's going on elsewhere and apply that and as well as like taking the best and learning from you know the, the experiences that others have. You know, so that we can then yeah. then apply it or at least share and share and explore. Can I ask you, how did you get into real estate? My initial training, and that also gives a bit of uh, explanation there, but I, I initially trained as an architect. And, you know, uh, I think what, what I love about uh, the built environment is that it's very tangible. It's also very creative and not necessarily creative in the crazy out there sort of way, but in the way that you need to resolve a whole host of different issues in order for a project to actually, you know, make it through. And also it's about managing all sorts of different specialties and people uh, with different knowledge in order to bring that all together in one project. So. I initially trained and worked as an architect. Um, my first job out of architecture school actually was lighting design, which was a bit surprising. I think in my last year of, of studies, uh, I had this lighting class, which was introduction to, to lighting. And they said, oh, there's this competition, you know, uh, for international lighting design internship, um, probably only for graduate students. I was an undergraduate at the time, uh, but you know, uh, anyone's free to apply. And so I'm like, okay, why not? So I sent, got, put my whole you know, portfolio together, got my recommendation letters, sent that out. And a couple months later, I got a call from a, a lead lighting firm in New York who said, how would you like to come out? We've, we've seen your file. We like what you do, what you're doing. And how would you like to come out and light the Statue of Liberty for the Bicentennial? And I'm like, oh, I didn't ask him how much I would pay to where I would live. It was just like, when do I start? So, so that's when I, I started working actually in New York City, uh, lighting the Statue of Liberty, which was really, really interesting. You know, I mean, that wasn't the only project they had me working on, but what was fun was taking the boat out at night and aiming the lights, you know, and whole change of, of what the Statue of Liberty uh, looks like. And then I worked, uh, then, then I, um, I moved to France. I moved to France, followed my heartthrob. Um, my husband, who wasn't my husband at the time, but just a boyfriend, led me uh, to France. And that's where I realized that the, fir the first thing about changing countries is that oftentimes you have to start over again. I didn't speak French. I thought, well, once I get the language down, you know, it's all the same. 
aim. It's just, you know, all I need to do is learn the language. But as I learned the language, I realized that there were huge cultural gaps. And I also realized that my architectural degree from the U.S. was not um, actually recognized in France, nor was my driver's license. You know, I mean, I had to redo everything. So I restarted life at that point. And I went back to architecture school for a few more years and got my French, um, what's called the DPRG, Diplomé par le gouvernement. So it's the governmental architectural diploma. So I'm actually a licensed architect in France. So, so that was that whole, that's how I got into, I would say, real estate. And after that, I worked for a number of years designing, project managing, working for, you know, small architecture firm. Uh, on some really interesting projects, mainly in France, when I was working for a number of real estate developers, and they, uh, some of them took me under their wing and said, oh, Tina, I see you're really interested in how this works. Would you like to come to our next um, you know, bid, uh, construction bid opening ceremony, or would you be interested in finding out more about how we build a, a pro forma development uh, um, appraisal? And so from that on, I started thinking, well, you know, this is really interesting. In some ways, it's moving up the food chain when it comes to giving orders. And, and in some ways, I love architecture, I still do. But I felt that a lot of the decisions of what was going to be built, how it fit its market, uh, how sustainable it was. I mean, a whole lot of things were decided uh, before the architect got involved. And that's why I thought this could be really interesting. I'd like to, to move up the food chain and, and go more into the real estate development investment side. And that's when I went back to school. I say I'm a masochist. <laughs> I, went, I went to business school and got a, a degree in France uh, in, in real estate and, and uh, urban, urban development, urban planning and, and the environment. And, um, and then, you know, started uh, working, I would say, more and more real, real estate rules rather than architecture rules from then on. And at what point did you then join RICS? So actually, um, I joined, so, so the real estate program that I studied at was at the ASEC Business School. And it's one of the first um, accredited uh, programs, RICS. So I started hearing about RICS when I went back to, when I went to business school. And, but at the time, you know, I, I knew I, I was in some ways pre-qualified through that uh, training, but I, you know, I knew I had to pass other exams, but I, um, I didn't right away take up uh, the idea of becoming a chartered surveyor. And what happened was as I was working and more and more as I was coming across these issues of uh, effectively, as I was saying, cross-cultural issues, valuation issues, project management issues, I thought, well, if I'm using the RICS membership book as sort of the people I want to work with, I mean, this wasn't only in South America, I also did quite a bit of work in Central and Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, in Russia, and in Poland. And 
And I was constantly using our ICS as the sort of benchmark of who I wanted to work with and who I, you know, who were the consultants and the specialists that I was going to be going for for support. And, and I said, well, you can't use this as a measuring stick and not measure yourself against it. So then I decided to go through the process of my um, APCs, I think. Yeah. And, and, and joint, our uh, joint was um, chartered in, uh, whoo, I can't remember the exact year, but. Uh, and it sounds like you've, uh, you, I mean, you know, listening to you talking about going back to school and studying and, you know, and I know lots of surveyors who do that as mature students, you know, you get to where you are in your career, different things happen. And we look at what do we now need to know? How can you do things differently? I guess you've built up a lot of resilience, you know, in, in that, as you've as you've gone through your gone through your career yeah yeah I for me I think what's the most important is knowing what you don't know and knowing who you can ask I mean that's you know it's it's really important not to try to know everything um and the other thing is is constant learning I just love learning I'm constantly reading up on things and getting interested my, my worst nightmare is I go into these sort of rabbit holes I'll start reading something and then I'll see a link to something else and a link to something else and before you know it you know half a day's gone by and you're just reading through uh, new information let me ask you uh, how did you uh, oh, what made you want to start your own business and to work for yourself because I come across lots of survey and I work with lots of small businesses as well and you know they've all got a story to tell as to what motivated them whether they felt they wanted to or not or just found themselves in those circumstances what made you want to start your own business well I think um actually what happened was you know I had been working in corporate functions in large organizations for a number of years and the most recent one uh, was generally real estate with a 32 billion euro asset under management portfolio, um, multi multi country, and I had had a number of you know really uh, high profile roles within generally real estate. But there was one thing that was really really important to me, and this started. I really started giving it some thought, and I know I'm not the only one. This is uh, it's going to seem really trite, but during the lockdown the COVID lockdowns, uh, and in France, we had several of them, just like, you know, in the UK and in a number of other places, they were quite strict. And, and there was a lot of time, I think, at that point that I could give to what was really important for me, and what I really wanted to accomplish. Um, and also because, you know, being sort of a mature professional, I felt like, okay, this is your chance. If, you know, you really believe something is important, you should go for it. And what really came to me as being the most important thing, well, I had been working in all of my roles practically since the beginning. Sustainability has always been sort of a yet uh, motif, you know, it's tied things in, foreground and the background, but it's always been there. But climate change just absolutely, I think, came to the point where I thought we don't have much time left. You know, reading things like um, I see, oh, I always forget the initials, I see PPE report. <laughs> um, 
and knowing that we only had a few years to turn things around. Uh, and also keeping in mind that, you know, as a head of sustainable investing, which was one of my last roles with generally real estate, I was so keenly aware of how impactful our uh, sector is, construction, real estate, you know, 40% of, of uh, globally of greenhouse gases, uh, over a third of our waste, um, a third of our water usage, over half of extracted materials are uh, from our subsoils are extracted for the construction industry. So, so the impacts are, are vast. And I thought, okay, if someone in my position, with my knowledge, with my contacts, um, doesn't do something to really push this issue, then who's going to do it? And that's when I decided two things. I decided I would run for this presidential rule at RICS and that I would start my own business in something that I think is really important. And it's all about the circular economy and avoiding embodied carbon in new, in new construction and also avoiding, you know, uh, waste in, uh, demolition. So, so I decided that was two things. One was that really, really tactically and operationally, I could make a difference with the ideas that I had on how to create value through the circular economy and how to bring actually this financial mindset that I've been working at for years, which is, you know, the whole Excel spreadsheet, bottom line, ROI, you know, uh, IRRs, you know, that part of the world speaking that language and knowing what, you know, an institutional investor with large portfolio, how they look at uh, value creation and how they look at assets. And then at the same time, having that really grassroots sustainability, circular ecology, you know, mindset that I've had ever since I first went to architecture school and bringing those two together. I mean, they're two worlds that don't really speak. Uh, mm -hmm. Bringing those two together and finding that common language through, and I'll explain it later, through, through what I'm doing was really important on the one hand. And on the other hand, I thought, well, if there's an organization that should be driving a driving force and a leading force of leading consortiums of, of like-minded players. Um, what, what, is, what else is there if there's not RICS pushing for you know, um, abating climate change? Mm -hmm. so, so this is where I thought, okay, this is a meeting of minds. There's this great platform where really we can make a difference. And climate change is something that's going to affect every surveyor, every walk of life, no matter if they're working for corporates or working for themselves, everyone is going to come across this issue. It's going to affect the way we value, the way we manage, the way we um, design, the way we construct, the way we procure. I mean, everything will be affected by uh, climate change. And I, we're seeing it today with all sorts of resource issues and shortages. So, so for me, there was this binary path that meant that I could really make a difference. I love that. And it resonates with me as to the, not on the same scale, perhaps, I don't know. But when I applied for governing council, it was almost, if I could put myself in a position 
or find myself in a position where I can make a difference. Learning what I've learned, you know, for me, um, you know, it's the home buy-in selling process in the UK, it's gender diversity, it's supporting small businesses. You know, if, I, if I can put myself in a position where I can make a difference, then why wouldn't I? And um, when I asked myself that question, I didn't have any, you know, no's. I mean, yes, obviously, you know, there's the, well, it's hard work and there's confidence and all of those things. But when you have that sense of purpose, it cuts through. It doesn't matter how, <laughs> it doesn't have to be a polished performance in, uh, in any way, but it's about having that sense of purpose and really, really going for it. And one of the things, um, I've got so many questions I could ask you. One of the things that really resonated for me was when we were in a um uh governing council uh, meeting not so long ago and we had some external speakers in and it was there were a long long couple of days and one of the things that i sometimes do when we're in long meetings when we have external speakers is i notice when people say ricks rather than rics and so I started to keep a little tally of, you know, how many times people say Ricks, not not the not RICS. Um, and so I'm sort of, you know, doodling this down on paper. And then the other thing I started to, I noticed as we went through the day was that at every opportunity and at every point you raise the sustainability and climate, climate issue, you know, relevance. And what you didn't do um, was... Uh, what I felt was be a nag because what sometimes happens is we nag about these things or we raise these things and people just switch off because it's either not relevant yeah. or that gap is far too big to understand but you ask some really interesting questions you really contextualize it and it made me realize um and I guess I you know we know this already but it's sort of really sort of brought it into the fact that we're not doing enough or we don't understand what we can do when it comes to sustainability and, and climate change it, within within all of our individual roles and so I'm really pleased that that you've come in that this is your agenda if you like so I think we can learn an awful lot of, uh, about it and bridge that gap on relevance I mean even just the other day my Surveyor Hub community Facebook group I um there was a, an article in the press about uh, going electric in terms of cars and I just posted it and said, you know, are you electric? You know, should I be going electric? Um, and it was really interesting, the responses of, yes, I'm absolutely committed to this and I've already got an electric car. Whereas other people were, no, the infrastructure isn't there yet. Um, or, you know, they had different sort of attitudes. But it really, for me, showed the problem of we've got to attack this at all levels. You know, for example, it's no point selling electric cars if you cannot charge it up anywhere, or you can't do the journey that you need to. But it's also more yeah. than that, you know, in terms of helping us understand, well, how can we travel? Can we get the train? Can we do different things? Um, even, you know, if you then think further, and I think about, you know, the residential surveyors that, you know, the, mostly the ones that I know, and how they go out and do surveys every day, and they might be recommending you know, damp proof treatments or structural repairs, but involved in that, you know, is concrete, it's that silicon stuff we're injecting in or not. And the, the materials that we use, and I, I wonder if surveyors know about that or know about the alternatives. And I think that's where RICS, and the, you know, I know there are lots of people out there who do retrofit kind of work or training, 
But there's a real gap, I think, an educational gap to show people, you know, what can be can be done. But also that signposting, even knowing that something is possible and signposting to a useful website or a useful co- uh, contact, yeah. um, or even just yeah, like the public saying. become become aware. Because even on the residential side, if I think about the number of homes a surveyor goes in and out of every day, you know, over the course of a year, you know, that's a 400 to a couple of thousand, depending on what they're doing. And that's an opportunity to educate and support somebody, and, uh, you know, on, on understanding the environmental issues, climate, and to join up all of those dots. So if you all make those marginal gains in our attitude, well, that's when the pieces will start to come together. And I think that's where RICS actually has a real role to play to help under, uh, understand all of that and to help us all do better. Yeah, and I think when you're saying, you know, how many houses a surveyor, a residential surveyor may visit and how many homeowners then therefore they're going to meet each year, you know, when you think about it, the surveyor's role could very well be and should, I believe, be uh, able to provide knowledgeable insights and knowledgeable and actionable um, advice when it comes to climate change and people's homes, for instance. And notably, you know, uh, there's physical climate change, physical risk that's gonna be out there. I mean, we're seeing more and more of the wildfires, the extreme heat, um, the flooding, you know, these aren't going away. Unfortunately, these occurrences, these extreme weather occurrences are going to um, exacerbate, if not, at least remain as as they are. And this year has been, you know, already a huge, uh, huge amount of them. And, and I think, I really do believe that a surveyor's role, once, once we manage to get the right information to all of our chartered surveyors, the, the training that, you know, in different fields that they may need to be up to speed, they can be that force for good and they can be force of proposition to their clients, you know, explaining how to best tackle uh, these issues that we're all facing. So I think that that's really good. And coming back maybe a little bit to what you were saying earlier, I'm glad that I wasn't perceived as a nag. But <laughs> let's put it this way. I was on a mission. I was on a mission. I pro- and I'm I promised you that I was listening and paying attention. I was just doodling. <laughs> Let me just tune in. And and the word Ricks is a just, you know, annoying for me. You know, you just tune in and I was just like, hey, hang on a minute. You know, and at every point you had. And we need people like that. You know, uh, what I'm finding more and more when I talk to younger or newly qualified surveyors, they get this. They it get totally this, they're, they're learning about it on their university courses. Um, I know they do it on the Sava diploma. There's a good you know, big chunk on, on energy and energy efficiency. And so younger people coming through or newly qualified coming through, get this and they have the tools and some of the, the knowledge. It's perhaps some of us who are further down the line that don't. And we either need to upskill or find ways to work in collaboration with others, you know, to to get to where we we need to. The younger generation not only gets it because they're being trained up, but they feel fully concerned. This is their combat. You know, 
and, and I, I should say, I think it's ours as well, definitely should be ours, but the younger generation, the generation of surveyors that are just, um, you know, in university today or just coming out, they all feel absolutely concerned by this. This is a number one concern, is climate change. And I think that, you know, that that's going to be key. And I do like the idea of saying, well, why not, you know, do some cross some mentorship upwards and downwards, you know, I mean, there could be some really interesting uh, um, reverse mentoring that could be happening in organizations, um, small and large, you know, with a young generation that's up to speed and knows how to calculate embodied carbon measurements and knows how to, you know, uh, survey for uh, physical climate risk or things like that. And um, and uh, a more mature generation that you know could be um, providing them other insights, uh, you know. So this cross mentoring and reverse mentoring could be really rich. Could be a great opportunity as well. Oh, yeah, that's oh, something I, that I'd like our ICS to be to be setting up, you know, and to be looking yeah. at how to leverage that. Yeah, but also oh, also working more with the universities. Yeah, and one of the one of the things I. I come across though when I when I speak to surveyors about how to introduce this into their work. I guess there's there's just three three things. One is you know understanding the relevance of it to their work, and then having the tools to know how to do it. You know how to have the the, the training or the signposting, the collaboration. Um, and I find a lot of surveyors actually don't understand the context of the market that they're working in. So you know, again, so on the residential side, surveyor might go out and just do the mortgage valuation or just do the, the home buyer survey or building survey, but they're not having enough interaction with their clients to know that they are concerned about sustainability and the environment. Um, but there's a, a second piece on, you know, joining the dots in an industry. Um, you know, here in the UK, they've talked about mortgages, um, you know, green mortgages, you know, although it's yeah. rather woolly. But there's still that that intention and that and that commitment. And we've got, you know, lawyers and conveyancers doing environmental searches, and yet surveyors never really see those or don't know how to interpret them. You know, and then we've uh, here in the UK, I don't know if, if you know, we've got something called the EPC, which is a, a performance. Yes, we, so every all time, across Europe. All yeah. across Europe. Yeah. And one of the one of the problems here is that, you know, they're not very good. They're not very relevant. They're not very good. They're not very accurate. And so, you know, there's that whole sort of industry cross-section cross piece of joining the dots. But then the other thing that, you know, that I, I come across with surveyors, and I think it's some of us who are more mature, and I, and I include myself in that, is we've got a fear of being sued and getting it wrong. And whenever there's any changes to the way that we work, the rules, the regulation, we always look at, you know, do I know what I need to do? If I go a step further, will someone criticise me? Will I get sued? And, the, and I guess the younger generation space don't necessarily have that. Or they haven't experienced a housing market crash where everything goes wrong. But sort of that, that, that fear, I guess, of the, well, how do I do that? And, you know, what happens if I get it wrong? And how, how far do I go? I I hear this a lot with um, some surveyors in, on different platforms and different conversations of well, where's the boundary of my job? Because it sounds like I'm doing everything for everybody here. 
and we take on that risk. And again, I guess this is where RICS, you know, and insurers and others have a role to play, you know, um, you know how yeah, far does a surveyor go and what is helpful and, and what's not. What I do know is we can be and should be much more helpful and we should never underestimate even the small stuff that we do and the way that we position our businesses, you know, the collaborations that we have. And that has a huge impact, even if right now, you know, we're limited in what we can do in our reports, for example. But there's, there's always a way, always a way. Yeah, I think um, what's interesting also is to look at uh, the commercial sector. Um, commercial real estate, because sometimes the residential real estate leads and at some other topics, commercial real estate leads. And I think on this whole, um, on this whole uh, climate change sustainability point, uh, the commercial real estate is leading right now because the corporates who are investing in, you know, whose portfolios being managed are large and by, you know, 70% commercial uh, real estate are actually pushing really, really hard for carbon zero plans, and you know um, this issue of the EPCs that can't you can't sell, you can't rent under a certain EPC level. You know this is all really coming to the forefront, and I think one of the worries, and I get what you're saying, Marion, when you say you know what the surveyor's main worry is, you know, sometimes is, well, will I be sued? What's my responsibility here? You know, where can I, how can I ring fence my responsibility? My feeling here is that if we don't get this right, our valuations in general will become much less pertinent and to the market. There are a number of large institutional investors who are already um, carrying out several sets of valuations. They'll do the standard RICS red book valuation. And then in parallel, they will have an environmental evaluation done using a certain number of algorithms, forward-looking um, weather maps, climate risk, you know, um, running Monte Carlo scenarios, you know, I mean, they're, they're doing this. And I could say that if it gets to a point where the difference between the values that are coming out of these more forward looking uh, mm -hmm. techniques of valuing, uh, and the traditional valuation method, if there is a gap that's too great, at one point, one of those will become obsolete. Yeah. And I think that's where we need to be absolutely on top of it. We cannot ring fence uh, and not treat the sustainability and the environmental and the climate issues. They need to be brought in and they need to weigh in on the valuations themselves. And we're not there yet. Um, this will be progressive. It's not easy. But I think if we get it wrong, if we don't go in that route, this could be uh, it could be a, a real challenge for for our um, our profession when it comes to valuations, which is you know really the mainstay of, of value creation in our sector. Mm. It's interesting you saying that between you know looking at commercial versus uh, residential, and I certainly see that you know any articles that I see on LinkedIn or in the you know magazines or whatever 
it is leading with with commercial and you can argue that they've got the resources the you know the the numbers i guess to to pull it pull it all together uh, but even even so in the you know the residential uh, uk sector for example i know a lot of the most of the panel firms who panel out work to the smaller firms they have people with a job title now as sustainability uh, you know Absolutely. climate uh, in there so it is starting to filter through and i guess it's just that last piece bearing in mind I think it's meant to be something like 60 or 70 percent of our ICS members work for themselves or small practices is that last sort of stretch which might be quite hard but needs to be done is how do we bridge that gap um, with what we've learned and how can we make that apply to individuals and my surveyor on a wet Tuesday in Margate so that he understands and and as we you know as we record this we've just had a really hot uh you know you know, a couple of periods here in the, the UK. Yeah. And, you know, there's been fires and, uh, and and different things, you know, and there's a lot of surveyors out there who may not realise, you know, they're going out inspecting properties. And with the heat, you know, there's plastic doors popping off, there's gutters that, you know, um, you can't tell whether they're, they're leaky or not. And when you, my, my, my background and, and experience is in, um, is in defect and valuation claims, and there was always a pattern. You know, you have a dry spell and, you know, you then get rain and you get defects and leaks. And they say, well, why didn't you notice it? You know, um, and, in, and in, you know, on the other side, when there's been flooding, you know, and then, we're, you know, you're, you're reporting yeah. in, a, in a different way. And so the materials that we use, um, you know, uh, when we build, you know, yes, we can we can look at those. But I think, you know, for the, the UK has got a lot of older housing stock. Uh, with lots of different materials and some of those need to be protected um, and looked after for heritage but it doesn't mean there isn't things that we we can do but a lot of surveyors and residential surveyors need to be really vigilant right now over you know the the soils the extreme weather that we're having what might come up in the Absolutely. in the future because it'll be expected that we that we do tune into these things, and I suppose you know you know I talk about surveyors being scared of of being sued, um, you know um, there's going to be some cases I'm pretty sure that will end up in court with an environmental you know ring around it over something that we could have done should have done joined the dots up with the industry you know got trained all of those things you know those those things will will come and i think we there's a lot that we can do to to prevent it and we talked about um about rics and and you went for the um senior vice president role let's just have a chat about that because um i think myself you and i think Anne gray we all run our own businesses on governing council which is quite nice as females um i i think there might be one or one or two more it's quite a commitment as a small business isn't it to commit the time to to doing this this kind of work how have you you came in as senior vice president you didn't come in on governing council and then got elected in tell me a bit about how that how that worked for you yeah so actually um I guess the first uh, sort of board position within RICS that I took up was as a member of the European World Regional Board. Um, and that was starting in, when was that? In 2014. 
So I was from 2014 to 2017, I was a member of the World Regional Board. And then um, I stepped up to chair of the European World Regional Board from 2017 to 2021. So it was from that base that I decided to then, um, you know, try my hand at the uh, senior vice president role. Yeah. But I think in the beginning, it was kind of funny at the beginning, I never would have thought of, you know, stepping up for a board position in Europe. But I got an email, you know, from RICS that had, you know, we're looking for new members for the World Regional Board in Europe. And, um, you know, here are the existing members. And I looked at it and I'm like, okay, there's one of my uh, old clients. There's one of my ex-colleagues. And I thought, okay, I, there's three people on the board already that I've already worked with. And I'm thinking, well, if they can do it, then maybe there's a chance I could do that too, you know? And that was probably my first experience in um, you know, in running for well, for 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 a position within the RICS, so it's um, I well, I also was very very much involved with the sustainability um, working group in France for for a while in the beginning as well, and uh, and so you know the idea of um, the sustainability working group was really interesting and in how I could bring that as well to a European level. So, yeah, so that's how I got involved at, at that level and, you know, dared to throw my hat in for the, uh, for the senior vice president role. And so what year, what year were you, did you, were you appointed for that? Was that 2020, 2021? Um, no, it actually, let me think it was, 2021 because right now I'm so senior vice president started in I think it was October that's right so it has a it has a three-year lead in doesn't it exactly yeah. so I'll be senior vice president up until October November 2022 and then uh if all goes well of course nothing's automatic um the next step would be president-elect for the following year and then at the end of 2023, um, present. So, yeah, so we've got Clement Lau at the moment, then Anne Gray, then you, and everyone exactly. shuffles up and, and moves up. Um, we can't not talk about the shenanigans that have gone on at RICS over the, the last couple of years. And I'm interested in your, your perspective because you're over in Europe, it's very heated over, over here, things had been in, in the press. Um, and then you come into governing council and, you know, we're in the middle of a, the, um, the reviews and, and things that we've, that we've had. Um, yeah. How did you feel about that? I mean, was it a total surprise that things were going on? You know, how did, how did you feel about it? I, I think um, actually in Europe, it might seem surprising, uh, Marion, but in Europe, there has been quite a bit of concern about um, the governance issues that, you know, that happened over the past few years. And um, a lot of our membership is very aware of it. 
And obviously, um, I also, uh, in my position with um, the European World Regional Board, was, you know, totally up to speed on what was happening. And actually, it was one of the reasons also why I decided to uh, put my head in for this role um, with a senior vice president, because I thought, you know, this is an organization that I strongly believe in. I believe in our ability to, um, to be a force for good, but there's a lot of change that needs to happen. And, and I felt that I could be, I could be a catalyst that I could help that I could support that change. So that was actually, you know, undergoing the, um, the Levitt review was underway when I, um, you know, put uh, my candidature in. So I was, I, I would say it didn't come as a surprise at all. Um, I've been following it very closely. And, and that was one of the reasons, one of the motivations was to be able to, you know, be part of that change for good. Mm. And, you know, coming in at that time, we're in lockdown. Yeah. You know, so as a governing council, we'd had one meeting, a fateful meeting in, uh, I think, no, November 2019. And then after that, you know, pretty much everything was online and that was quite an interesting dynamic as to you know how we gel as a team and it has to be about, about teamwork how we interact but also it had many benefits there was less travel um even though we you know we couldn't um so it's quite a quite an interesting time and so it's taken a long while I think for all of us to get to know each other but there's a lot you can do with a whatsapp group and you know uh, the the changes that were were then happening We've now, um, you know, as we record this today, we've yeah. had the Bichard review um, in uh, information, um, uh, sorry, recommendations come out. Uh, how do you, how do you feel about it, about the recommendations and the, and the direction that RICS is heading? I, I think that um, it's absolutely a necessity. I think that what the Bichard review has come up with is, is not a surprise again, um, I think it's all uh, good, good governance, um, good common sense, and there's an incredible amount of work to do to turn this around. So I would say we need to hit the ground running, and we have tons of work to do, but it's, um, I'm feeling, and I'm feeling from what I'm hearing from members that I meet, um, you know, in, in day-to-day uh, practice, that um, they're quite upbeat about the possibility now to really turn things around. Mm. But we don't um, have much but, time. I think I think we're, we're, yeah. we're the patience is running thin because you know we've we've had the first review, we've had a second review. Um, these take time. Uh, of course, this is a major changes in governance that we're going to be enacting here, and that um, you know couldn't have been done lightly. I don't regret the time that we spent to have these two external studies done. Of course, it would have been great if they could have happened quicker, but I think it was necessary uh, that everyone felt that the all the voices were being heard, taken into account, and that it was measured you know, advice that was being offered up to a specific situation that we we're in. And, um, you know, and I so think, I, yeah, I think the, the key is that they were independent. 
you know yeah. we we didn't you know design them it was it, uh, it was in, independent and you're right i think it is important the the action happens because yeah, it has felt a long time um but there's also processes that have to be you know that have to go through you know even things like changing bylaws you know yeah, we've got a royal charter which means we actually need to go to the queen <laughs> to change something yeah so so you know that's so council, council yeah those those things that um you know take time but i also think you know the attitudes of, of surveyors that i speak to they're either all in this is positive let's make change versus still that lack of trust and you know mm. no i'm not interested not gonna give my time and i think you know those are the people that you know need to see see change probably the most important thing you know these governance changes are important but they will not affect the day-to-day life of Mm. most surveyors what's really going to affect them is that the change now is that we are going to be a member-led organization and that we had lost we'd really lost that uh that focus um so the staff, the organization needs to be there to support the members, but the members will be leading. And that's the big difference. And also coming out of COVID and lockdowns and whatnot, we absolutely need to rekindle those relationships and the events and the organization of events and CPD and in-person meetings, you know, this is where our membership will feel the difference when they're being asked to participate in new meetings, new conferences, uh, you know, this is where um, I think we can really add value quickly uh, to, to the membership. And I think we need to, we, can, we can't wait on that. I wanted to ask you, um, so you applied for senior vice president and the role has now changed at effect in, ter- in terms of being chair. How do you feel about that? I think actually it's a change for good. I think the issue with the separation of the two roles being the presidential role and the chair of governing council which was quite recent, only, you know, it only happened a couple of years ago. Um, and I, I think that there was perhaps a disconnect between uh, a, a, let's say, a representational role on the one hand and the actual running of the organization on the other. And it put, I think, perhaps the president in a position um, where they could be an ambassador, but didn't always know exactly what was going on and wasn't weren't always involved in decision making. Um, and that could be quite dangerous. You know, you don't want to be an ambassador and not know, not be in charge. I met really interestingly, we met with uh, alongside you, Marion, we had the chance of meeting with a number of the past presidents. Yeah. And one of them said to me, yes, one of them said to me, Tina, the most important thing that I learned was when I would be meeting with surveyors and there would be issues, I was able to tell them the buck stops here. I've heard you. 
I'm the one who makes the decisions. I mean, you know, that this how how he said mm. it to me. And I thought, you know, that's something you couldn't do when the two rules were separated. Um, so I think it's important. Uh, I understand also that there needs to be a whole support um, team and function around the new role of president because, and, and as well as the team. I mean, one thing that I really enjoy is having come in at senior vice president is we actually do have a real team spirit between the three of us, Anne and Clement and myself. We, we create a team, you know, and, and we do work together and we support each other and we, you know, hand off responsibilities to whoever's most uh, appropriate accordingly. So I, I think that's good, but it has to be more than that. And there is in, in the Bishard review, there is a substantial, you know, change in how the team around the president will, will be organized. And when that is in place, of course, the role will be much more manageable. Um, right now, it seems quite daunting. Uh, when we see, you know, the absolute incredible role um, that Nick McLean has been doing as chairing the governing council and the amount of time and energy and know-how he's been putting into that role. Um, plus the amount of ambassadorship work that Clement has been doing and building relationships. And, you know, and you think, oh my goodness, both of those roles together, it's, it's, you know, it's impossible. But I do think that with, the new structure being put into place with the new uh, support team uh, being put into place, the rule hopefully will, <laughs> will become manageable. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the other, I guess, sort of significant change in the uh, recommendation, sorry, in the Bishard review was more of a UK focus, given that's where the majority of, of members are. And at the moment, we've got Clement, who's in Hong Kong, I think, you know, and yes. who's in the in the US, although she does spend an awful lot of time in the UK, it's important to say. And you're in Paris, actually, which isn't that that far that far away. How do you feel? Sorry, these are tricky questions, but how do you feel about that balance and you know, presidential role being international, if you like? Yeah, I I think um, obviously you know we need to be sensitive uh, to to the fact that you know seventy percent of our membership if I don't have a number approximately right is is UK based and and historically you know of course this is a the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors so it's UK uh, historically based um, I do think that um, it's I, I don't feel uncomfortable with it, maybe also because I have spent quite a bit of my professional life working in the UK and notably in London, and I, I understand the market, I lived in the UK, you know, so, um, and I think, you know, Anne as well has, has you know, her, her connections and her experiences also, and, and Clement, um, I think, as as Hong Kong has been very close uh, to, you know, uh, the UK for for so historically and is so much modeled off of UK practices. So I, I don't think any of us are coming to this completely blindsided. Um, and I don't think we're unsensitive to to, you know, the uh, the situation and the knowledge base mm. um, in the UK. 
and and this organization of course is is international but mm. will remain um also very very important and based in the UK you know so and, and i think it creates a real uh, you know opportunity to close this gap you know this between my surveyor in Margate on a wet Tuesday and what goes on internationally, you know, and around the world and the, you know, even, you know, we talked about sustainability and all the other things, you know, but bridging that gap. And, and I would hope that the new role would allow us to do more of that in a, in a practical way rather than have, you know, someone traveling the world wearing a gold chain, you know, and then operations run, run differently. So it's going to be different. There will be transition period. I'm sure there'll be teething problems. But if we're all heading in the right direction, then, you know, that's going to be a good thing. Tina, it's been fabulous to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Marian. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. It, it has been that informal chat that you promised me. So uh, I really liked it. really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the conversation with Tina and I. If you've got any feedback, as ever, do reach out and let me know. And don't forget to rate, review and follow the podcast. I'll see you next time.